Jeff Ross, veteran game director, producer, artist. I don't know. I don't know how to refer to you, Jeff, because I feel like you've got a pretty uh, story career. Game director, I feel like, is the most. It's the most recent thing I did. Okay. Sure, but uh, designer, uh, you know, uh, in all kinds of. You know, when you're a designer, you're doing a little bit of everything. So yeah, producer, artist. I actually did model some. Uh, some of my models made it into Golden Abyss, so I consider myself an artist. Cows. <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote some build chain scripts, so I consider myself a coder. They don't like that, but... Uh... Uh, you know what? I'm, we can just start with that, because one of the things I'm passionate about, and I feel a lot of people don't know, including myself, if you're not in the industry, there are so many different titles that people have. Can you kind of just tell me the different... What are the different roles that you've had, and how do they differ from each other, I suppose? Sure. You know, my first one was as, was just as a designer on the original Siphon Filter 1. I came in about halfway through development, and uh, really what it meant was you populate missions, and you play them until they're fun. And at that point, it was late 90s. There weren't, you know, scripting languages weren't a common thing, so you basically are just doing, uh, you're placing NPCs, and they're just kind of doing their systemic thing. Beyond that, you know, uh, you know, there was a lot of other work that's kind of the intangibles, which typically falls on, uh, you know, maybe a, a production group or, or designers or, or technical designers, and that is anything that needs to be done that you don't know about ahead of time. This is something. The more uh, well-rounded you are, the more capable you are of just kind of doing every errant task that comes up. So, on the original second filter, I, I hand optimized every level for memory, which wow. was like a, a really, you know, the, actually the entire original trilogy. I would go through. Um, and just kind of calculate the sectors, what was active from what, what really needed to be active, uh, you know, and was there a way to kind of shave polygons from one sector and put it onto another to move the memory to that so you weren't over memory in another way. Uh, you know, just really esoteric things that you don't realize that you're ever going to do in your life until you have to do them. And then they, then they wind up presenting themselves as just uh, really fun challenges, you know, even though they're, they're extra work. Um, so, you know, as a mission designer on that, and then on Siphon Filter 2, uh, I did everything from before. I still did mission design, but I started moving into creating layouts. So you could say, you know, mission level design work as well. We incorporated a scripting language um, on Siphon Filter 2, so we started doing a lot more technical design. Uh, and there were still just two designers on those first two games. So we basically did all the missions plus all these other kind of overflow tasks. Year-wise, I apologize, Siphon Filter 2 is 2002-ish, am I? No, 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 that would have been 2000. Oh, got earlier than I thought. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So the first one came out in '99. Yeah, they came out '99, 2000, 2001. Gotcha. So yeah, uh, yeah, we cranked them out really quick. You said the word "fun" in there because when you were describing it at first, I was thinking tedious. It just sounds like so much work to have to like comb through so much. It sounds like you found some joy in it. Obviously, it it was a career that took off for you. Um, yeah. I guess just to phrase it as a question, how did you get into gaming? What was it about this as a career path that was interesting to you? How did you kind of first start off? Um, how did you get into it? Well, you know, as a, as a kid, you know, I was, you know, I remember going to the arcades uh, when uh, Asteroid was out. And, you know, it was, so, you know, it, it, I think it was maybe nine or ten when that came out. And, you know, it's just surreal. You know, kids take it for granted nowadays just kind of you know, what games are, but, you know, when, when they didn't exist in your world and then they did, it was really super profound. So um, I was always interested and in always, you know, going to the arcades and, and playing, uh, you know, and then you know, I think friends had NESs, and I'm like, this stuff is playable home, this is fantastic, so we would just play games. I think I had a ColecoVision. In nice. Atari. <laughs> <And> <laughs> Throwback. Those, 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then there was in television, which I didn't have, but uh, I was just always a gamer, basically. And at the same time, I was, uh, I kind of had an affinity for um, story. Uh, and this is way back in the 80s, me and some friends, we just wanted to make movies. For, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing, but we just knew, hey, we want to do that. And this is way back before you can make anything on your camera, on your phone. Mm-hmm. So we had to, you know, rent cameras from the cable access studio or, or kind of, you know, we didn't have to pay for it, but you had to bargain. They, they got your content. But we would uh, just do these real movie-style shoots with, with video cameras and then edit them on VHS tape, which is terrible. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you know, the movies weren't good, but we were learning the whole time. You know, But we were also just kind of expressing ourselves and finding a creative outlet for things. And then uh, I think after college, I stopped making movies. But I was always interested in story and writing. And um, I, I kind of drifted away from gaming in college. But you know, afterwards, I started playing more. But then um, I think I bought a computer to organize my CD collection. I was like... <laughs> it was weird, but when I was at the store, I found the shareware disc for Doom, and I'm like, huh, this seems interesting. And so I never organized my CD collection, but I played the hell out of Doom, bought the full version, and realized, like, oh, this game was made in Texas. And here in America, I thought games just materialized out of Japan. And that was a real moment for me that um, that I've had, but I've talked with other developers, and they've had the same thing, too, where they just they just didn't know, and then it dawned on them, and they're like, okay, i got to get in, because this is kind of at the crossroads of all my interests. You know, interactivity, games, and, and, and story, and, and cinema, just really kind of, they converge for me in a game like Cypher Builder, where the missions, it, it is a very story-centric game, right. but it's also a game. And it just was like the, the right combination of, of, of kind of skills or, or talents or proclivities. It's interesting for me to hear that, um, A, as somebody who worked in and around Hollywood for a little while, but people who are, are storytellers and had an interest in being filmmakers at one point, because... The barrier for entry to film, especially now, but even back when you were younger, um, is a little bit lower than it was for games. You don't have to learn programming. You don't have to learn computers as much. It's not as heavy as a science lift as uh, gaming is. So I'm interested to hear, I wanted to be a storyteller, but you didn't pursue being a filmmaker. You decided to go for the track of games. Is it just the interactivity? What was it about that medium specifically? You know, in in all honesty, it was just really about opportunity. And uh, it's one of those things where, I mean, even now, yes, the barriers is easier, but it still feels like a pipe dream. You know, like, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, I'm going to go to Hollywood, I'm going to sell my movie, I'm going to direct it. Like, you know, that's never going to work out except for the point of 1%. So I think, you know, as a kid in Oregon in the 90s, or a young man, a young adult in Oregon in the 90s, I kind of gave up on, like, yeah, that's not for me. But, mm-hmm. you know, as far as, like, am I, am I really going to do it? But um, uh, then the game thing came along, and it just seemed to be, um, it wasn't just movie or games. It was a lot of the same things I would have brought to movies but also while making games. So I think that it's not like I had a choice. <laughs> but the choice of working in games, uh, you know, I think this kind of, it leans on more of my unique talents or, or uh, my many perspectives. Yeah, and it certainly worked out, obviously. But um, when you start in this industry, because as you said yourself, there wasn't really something that you knew you were going to do until a little bit later on. What type of training did you need? How hard was it to get these jobs? Did you just kind of learn as you were going on or you formally go through classes to get yourself prepared for this type of career? For, uh, for sure. So an important distinction to make here is there's the, the, the industry in the world back then, and then there's how it is now. But, you know, there were, I, to the best of my knowledge, there weren't really any video game schools. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe there was some technical school that was doing something, but it wasn't like the game design programs that they have. Right. Um, so for me, it was in the early days of the Internet. You know, uh, Yahoo was a thing. Google wasn't. And when you, you know, when you, you say, hey, you know, when you type into a, or some sort of spider or web crawler or whatever the internet search was at the time. Ask Jeeves. <laughs> yes, yes, something. And it's like, hey, 
how do I make levels for Doom? And you know, it just there wasn't a wealth of resources like there were now. There were there there were resources, but you really had to dig and be committed to um, figuring this out because they didn't lay it out for you. There was no YouTube videos that just kind of said follow this and then tweak it and kind of build on your own. You had to uh, you had to read what was probably poor writing, you know, poor descriptions of how to do things on some you know kind of like not professional tools, but they got the job done. So you know, back then it was it was a bit of a grind and a lot of trial and error for for me. Uh, nowadays, kids, I think they can benefit just from uh, you know if they don't. I, I really don't like to recommend college for game design necessarily, um, just because it is very expensive, and I think that there's a lot of stuff that you could that if you're driven and determined enough, you could actually recreate uh, the academic environment at home. You know, but it's, you're going to have to you're going to have to pull that information towards uh -huh. you. Whereas in college, they're going to push it. But but people are leaving with like two hundred thousand, two hundred fifty thousand dollars in student loans to go to these game schools, and it's like, that that's where it breaks down for me, you know, where they, they don't even, like, my, my student loans, when I had them, it was like a fixed price, like, a hundred bucks a month or something like that to pay them off. Well, nowadays, they don't even ask, they, they can't do that. They basically say, well, how much money do you make? <laughs> Let's work out a, uh, Tax work on out that. a deal. It's, it will scale this to you just because they know the payments are ridiculous. So, um, unless you're blessed with family money or get, to, you know, get scholarships, I, I say try to try to learn as much as possible um, just by yourself. Uh, I would lock myself in my in my garage back in the day and just kind of just you know hammer things out and try to figure it out. And um, you know that that worked, but there's so much more out there that you know you can almost be uh, a doctorate level by the time you ever you know get your job at the industry just based on self learning. But the most important thing is to just build something. I think that mm -hmm. you know learn enough to just start to make one small component of something. It could be as simple as uh, in Game Maker, getting a character to move across the screen. You know, everybody's done it, so there's a wealth of, of, of examples out there. But with, just in, in recreating it yourself, you kind of start to learn a lot of things, and you, you know, you start to kind of get hints of many, many of the other aspects of development. So um, I really encourage people to do that. You know, so go from simple movement to hey, build an interact to maybe make uh, you know some, a basic AI or something. You don't focus or, or stress out on making a full game because those, those are hard uh, you'll never finish it and that will kind of it'll dissuade you from from the industry when i just think you know spread yourself across a lot of different types of of uh, kind of gameplay moments or interactivity mm -hmm. to try and then see what's for you and and i guarantee you those lessons will be great uh, resources for any studio that hires you now that's the other thing uh, we it's only we did a lot of outreach with colleges and it worked out really well for us but um you know, it, it's something where we also hired some people just off the street, you know, to do low-level, kind of entry-level production work, and um, really 50-50 <laughs> in terms of, the, you know, the success rate of either one of them were about the same, and it didn't seem dependent upon their school. It, it seemed dependent upon their just kind of uh, game dev IQ and their work ethic and their willingness to iterate and just kind of always always reflect on what they've done and try to understand why, why it is what it is and how they can make it better. And then try to apply that without um, spending forever on one thing. When you, so, uh, sorry, when I, you say game dev IQ, um, is that like savvy for coding? Is it just sort of being malleable and learning? Oh, I did this. This worked. I know now to plug this in. The same way it would be with any other industry. Is, is that what you're saying, or is there a very specific thing with game dev? I, I think it's wisdom and, and experience is kind of what it is because it can. It, you know, it's going to mean something for every every different discipline, but kind of just a. Um, Understanding the um, the simplest pathway to get something done, the simplest, most elegant way of getting something done, only comes from experience and from having tried. So I think that all those things are going to raise you, you know, raise 
that IQ is maybe not the best term to use, but I think that it's just it's a it's a, it's it's one of those intangibles that makes us valuable. You know, it's like on paper, if you haven't shipped a game, you might be really smart, but you don't know the all of the concessions yeah. that you have to make. You know, really how the how the sausage really gets made. You seem very much um, a learn by doing type of person, um, and I'm assuming that comes from your own personal experience and when you got started in this industry. Is that fair to say? Yep. Yeah. Um, speaking of that, you were lucky enough early on to work on a game that was a hit, obviously enough to spawn sequels, but did that open doors for you when you, I worked on this game that a lot of people know just by the name of it? Does that, you would imagine that that would help you along in the career and help you make that next step, but what was it like after those games had shipped? After you shipped Siphon Filter, uh, Siphon Filter and Siphon Filter 2, uh, what, did, what did change in the industry? What did it look like for you after and before? For sure. I mean, it, it definitely opened up new doors and opportunities. As soon as the first one came out, you know, we were a dev team of, I think, about 13 people. So, you know, like, I think everybody was getting recruited or talked to by people. And so, um, you know, that that's cool. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there, uh, uh, it, it wasn't like, hey, Jeff, come here and we'll give you the, the, the Lamborghini and the building. You can make anything you want. You know, like, you're still a cog in a larger machine. So I think that you get good offers, but they're basically offers just to do different things at different places. You know, so it, it's cool to have those options, but mm. um, it's also cool to kind of build upon, build on what you've done in the past. So um, I have actually taken jobs where I was recruited. Uh, I think after about five years at, at Idetic or Sony Bend early on, I, I did quit and went to uh, Sandy Studios. It was a startup in San Diego. Um, and then, you know, that failed after a bit, and I kind of drifted around, and then they called me back home at Sony Bend where I came back for like 15 years. Um, so, you know, leaving isn't always the smart thing to do, you know, like you really have to kind of measure your opportunities. But um, but I think that, you know, my growth as a game developer has always come from uh, seeing other, seeing how other studios have done things differently, done the same things differently, sometimes in, in, in positive ways and sometimes ways that are steps backwards from, from what you know. So, you know, that, that's probably the most uh, interesting thing, the most uh, uh, valuable piece of wisdom I've gained by traveling to, to different studios is just, Knowing that nobody's got this figured out, <laughs> it's about kind of figuring out the team, the chemistry, the strengths and weaknesses, and the mission at hand, and then just trying to make the best decisions therein. But uh, always trading teams for something better is never, never the answer. Not to put you on the spot, but because you mentioned it, you said you looked at other places that were doing things and kind of learned from that. Can you think of a specific example? Oh, for sure. I mean, uh, so you know, even uh, when I, when I went to Sammy, you know, they were a much larger studio who um, they would bring. Ten guys in to work on AI that was not very robust, <laughs> and it was like very frustrating and difficult for designers to use. Um, where at Bend, we had one AI engineer who created simple, elegant AI because he had to. He didn't, you know, he didn't go for fancy bells and whistles because he was just one guy, and it made it just much more um, pragmatic and useful, and it, it didn't get in our ways. So I think that that's just something that he had to code that way because of the, the nature of the team size. This other team had the luxury of having more people, which didn't necessarily multiply their capacity times the number of people. It actually probably slowed down uh, in, in numbers. Of <laughs> As it does for whatever reason. Right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the mythic man month is, such, is so true. Yeah. So, you know, there's that. But then there's also just kind of um, uh, approaches to um, technical problems. Sometimes mm -hmm. it can be very stingy from an engineering point of view just to, be, um, to really manage uh, the, the memory and the performance overhead. Uh, and sometimes, you know, and, and that can be good if the, if the engineers are responsive. And then there's kind of more open-ended content, you know, uh, you know, uh, basically data-driven uh, places where 
Uh, I think the creators can be more creative. They can iterate without having to talk to other people, which is where, as soon as you bring somebody else in, that's where like creativity and iteration goes to die because it's going <laughs> to be, it's, it's, it's rarely a positive thing, but um, it, it's things like that. It's just basically some things are easy at studio A uh, and those are hard at studio B and vice versa. And it, that is true across the board. So things that I probably learned, you know, I did work at Rockstar Vancouver for a little while, that's a long story. But um, when, we were, when we were working on Days Gone, there were some things that, you know, uh, I kind of gleaned as a player and then seeing the tools, it, you know, seeing it, it, it Rockstar, I realized just uh, how lightweight their tool set was. And when you look at their world and just kind of how, um, basically, their tool set at the time was uh. really um, low level. And not intuitive and not user friendly. At Rockstar, too. At, at, at Rockstar. Okay. And um, it was something where, it, the, you know, whatever kind of uh, frustration or, or, or opacity existed with how things worked was made up for with just the runtime performance of how lean everything was. Uh, but then we look at something like Days Gone, which is obviously I am very fond of. Um, <laughs> very the opposite. You know, it's like designers could create almost, you know, many subsystems within the game and, you know, artists and engineers could. And, um, I think that uh, I didn't apply any of the, the, the findings from Rockstar to Days Gone, but reflecting on the contrast between the two, and where Days Gone streaming wasn't performant, and you know there were you know the, the glitches and stuff. I think kind of came from the heavy, just the, just the heavy overhead of Unreal and up that that kind of uh, kind of content uh, creators paradise can lead to blow that leads to problems and stuff. So I just think that. Uh, Figuring out just building just enough engine and just enough tools for the team to build just enough game goes a really long way, as, as evidenced by Rockstar's games. It's interesting because it's almost a pitfall of as technology advances. At least that's what it sounds like from what you're saying. The more you can do, the more chances are you're going to bloat it or crash it because there's so much. There's so much depth. Is that is that something you always have to be aware of when you're making these? I, I, I think so. You know, on the original Siphon Filter when it was on the PlayStation One, I think. Uh, People, I forget, but it was like one or two megs of RAM, and uh, there was video RAM too. But uh, the the main memory was was one or two megs, and that's nothing. And we were creating st streaming uh, uh, worlds where the player is running through really fast, and, mm -hmm. and can, he can backtrack, and the world is always streaming in. And um, those when I you know optimizing the memory for those, um, the the engineer, the, the 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 head programmer would come to me and say, Jeff, this level is over. We will never ship unless you can find 2K of memory. <laughs> you know, like that's just that's a drop uh, of memory nowadays. And I think that um, I think that previously console developers could be uh, console developers had to be lean and and performant and kind of down as close to the metal as possible. Um, with all of the tools now, like you know, Unreal is an example. It's it is basically an in between layer. So understanding where where the metal meets that in between layer, nobody really understands it. You know, it's just, it's like this black box. So I think that just by the nature of um, all of the next gen upgrades, the, you know, the fidelity of everything, the tool chain, yeah, things are, are bloated and it's a necessary evil, but I think that uh, back in the olden days when you had two megs of RAM, you really had to make hard choices about what was or wasn't going to be in, in a level or in your game at all. And I feel like that that's, um, yeah, I'm not saying console developers don't do this, but if they always still operate with the mindset that memory is precious and they've only got two megs of it, they're going to make more efficient choices as they go. It'll slow them yep. down in making something, but it, it'll always be something that um, max, maximizes the uh, the resources used. You won't end up with The Irishman by Scorsese and it's four and a half hours long. <laughs> I like that movie, I'm just saying. It was a little yeah, which, <laughs> I, 
thought I was going to have to break that up into multiple chunks, and I sat through the whole thing. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it was better than I expected. Yeah, you got, well, it's Scorsese. What are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, speaking of great directors, uh, you were at Bend multiple stints, but over a long period of time, and going back to when it was eidetic. Um Your role obviously evolved significantly over that time. What was the difference... I mean, at Bend itself, but then also just in your own career, going from somebody who's working on a game to somebody who's directing the game, and this is my vision, and I have a team that I'm trying to guide towards it. How do you kind of take on those roles? What's it like to be a game director? Because I feel, A, it's not a hat that's the same at every game. It's it's a very different thing, and I'm wondering what your experiences were as a game director. Yeah, you know, so on, on Days Gone, I, I started Days Gone as the co-lead designer with another designer, and... Um, when we switched engines, because we had a very early build of Unreal, uh, we basically didn't have any of our features. You know, So the art team was off to the races. They were making beautiful landscapes and worlds really quickly because that's what the tool was geared for. But we had to wait for a lot of our systems to come up on. And you know, there were like almost two years where just it, the design was more of an academic thought exercise than it was a reality that we were playing. And um, it, when you're trying to do something, you know, Days Gone gets slammed for not doing anything new. And, and you know, like it's, it's kind of fair, but it's not 100% the case from my point of view. But when you're trying to basically carve out a niche for yourself, is, is how I would say that. Um, you, when you're competing with, a, when you're in the same kind of ballpark as a game like Far Cry mm. or Red Dead or you know even The Last of Us, one of the things you have to start thinking about is like, okay, um, we can't compete with these people toe to toe. So how can we how can we kind of find uh, a perspective on this that's going to play to our limitations and we'll turn those limitations into strengths. So um, basically, on paper. It's really tough to do anything ambitious or new because designers are terrified of, of doing things that are going to confuse players or be janky or just uh, not be intuitive. And one of the things that, so on paper, it's tough to kind of make any advances on things because everything sounds like a bad idea. And uh, so we had no progress. And at a certain point, the studio recognized that because we were agreeing to disagree a lot. And um, I never thought I would be a game director. Um, but at the, at the moment where we were, where we were making zero progress, and part of it was because tech was, you know, we were dependent on technology, but we also weren't advancing just a core idea. Um, it was because the buck didn't stop with anybody. And so I think that the role of a game director or a creative director in a modern studio is not necessarily about being the person that is, this is the idea, this is my vision, uh, you know, uh, since I was a child. Um, it's like we've got to solve some problems, like how are we going to differentiate ourselves in the market? Um, how are we going to have, you know, what, what are our core loops? How are we going to, um, how, can we, how can we be familiar yet different? Um, you just start looking at things like that and, and solving problems instead of kind of imparting vision. I, I, that might, you know, that's probably my, that's definitely my own philosophy. Other directors and creative directors might think, you know, they may have their own, whereas mm-hmm. the opposite. But for me, it's a matter of, okay, we're making an open world game. The story's kind of set. We know what the missions are. It's here. Um, let's just go make sure that we that we're building the world properly for the for the motorcycle for all of the on foot mechanics, and you just um, kind of finding the right people on your team to lead those efforts. Because as as game director or creative director, you can't be making every decision yourself. You're gonna, you have to make fifty thousand decisions in the course of a game. So the best way to do it is to create kind of principles or pillars or philosophies that you can kind of impart and push down upon people, so that they you know once they fully internalize them. They can kind of use the, use them as a lens to make good decisions that are like what you would have, would have made, or slightly different, but good enough to kind of fit within. They're not going to they're not going to betray the in- intentions elsewhere. So you know that's that's a necessity. Um, but at the same time, I think that there it's not like the, the the game director is just a a person solving problems. 
he's got to uh, he's got to kind of double down on what he's got to double down and enforce what the game is. Um, and for for Days Gone, it became a motorcycle action survival game uh, with with the horde. And it or sorry, an open world motorcycle action survival game. And that led to stuff like the gas cans, you know, having to you know refill the bike, having to repair. Not popular, not not popular features amongst the most designers that aren't that aren't into survival games. Um, but without them, we wouldn't have had um, we wouldn't have had the unique tensions mm-hmm. that kind of that, that kind of came from running out of gas and having to go find gas. And so a lot of my struggles were kind of like trying to figure out that tone, like what was what was too hardcore and what was what was basically not enough uh, to kind of make the system worth it. So when the bike used to run out of gas, the designers would a few of the designers put every gas can in the world on the minimap, you know, just to say, here's where a gas can yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. And, and then they, would, they also overpopulated the world with gas cans. And uh, it's just one of the things where you, if your bike runs out of gas, it's, it's, it's obviously a very interesting situation because it doesn't sound fun on paper, right? Um, but when you run out of gas, it sucks. But if the gas can's five feet away, then it's just more of a it's, it's just more of a rote task. Right. There's no there's, there's there's no point to it. Like and that, and that really amplifies the the suckiness of running out of gas in the first place. But when the player runs out of gas and he's stuck, and it's when it surprises him because he, he just he messed up, um, having to figure out for himself like okay where am I? Where is the most likely place I could find gas and just let them go find it? And that would lead to um, some of the best tensions. In, in the game that we've seen people play. I, I experienced them myself, but just watching people play or, or, or recount stories, um, it, it led people into um, a lot of special moments and surprise kind of scares that were systemic. And it, it's one of those things where if we didn't have the running out of gas, then people would never have had to go on foot anywhere. So it, it was something that, again, it was a fight a very long time to get uh, you know everybody on board with it or to not fight against it. Mm-hmm. You know, And um, basically... If you're making a different kind of game, this isn't the right decision to make. But when you're a small studio trying to make an open-world game that's competing with, with Far Cry, um, you have to find differences that um, that basically play to your strengths or, or your or your uh, you know your weaknesses. And you know, I call this one going big by going small. So yes, we are going to focus on you know, getting a gas can that you don't know where it's at and you have to go get it. And sometimes there will be a million NPCs in the way. Sometimes there will be none. But you're going to be tense the whole time, and that's what we're that's what we're going for. And, and that paid off really well. Uh, other things where I would have to kind of, you know, enforce the tone, it would be um, we had these massive towers that Deacon had to climb, and, you know, there, there weren't that many of them. But uh, early on in the game, Deacon had to do that. And it's something every designer wanted, the, you know, player to build a power slide down, down the ladder. And I'm like, no, we can't do it. Like, this is, if we do that, we're moving into the realm of superhero or super soldier, you know, elite commando. And uh, somebody said, well, this artist was in the Marines. He served in Afghanistan. It's <laughs> so, like right here. Uh, would you power slide down that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so there's just there's things where you're you're not certain, but you feel right. Yeah. Like it, it, you know, because it, it's a soup of things that have to kind of come together. You know, at the end. But um, to me, that's what game progression on Days Gone was was basically um, being reasonable for development, letting you know some features slide or change or more for it to simplify for the better, standing firm on something that you know the player's really going to need, um, but then also um, just making sure that you're making something worth playing. So a lot of abstractness there, but I think it's just kind of being the person who brings it all together would be my description of what happened on 
these kind. I, a lot of what you said is very interesting. I mean, I, I hate to keep making comparisons to film, but I, I do think it's easier for people because maybe there's more of a learned language there for audiences with film. Yeah. Um, but you might think of a game director and think, well, they come up with a story and they frame the shots and they make sure the story's going through. But if you're making a game as opposed to a film or a television show or even write a novel or a short story, whatever it is, you also have to think of these systems and the systems actually interact with the audience and they ground them in that world. So you saying things like cutting out a slide down, it is important. It might not seem as important as it is, but it, it grounds you in that world. And going out to find the gas cans, it makes it a survival game, and it gamifies that mechanic of the game. So to have that in your mind when you have such a clear vision, because we talked right before the game launched, uh, 2019? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you said, I remember this, you, you looked at your window at Ben's studio and said, like, wouldn't this be an interesting place to have a zombie apocalypse or something? And I, So it seemed like it was a pretty crystallized idea from the beginning. So the story seemed to always be there for you, and you had a clear vision of what this world was supposed to be. But then you have to balance that with how do I make it a fun experience, A, I suppose, and then have it feel real to the vision that I wanted that was very clear from the get-go. Yes, for sure. And so in, in, for Days Gone, it's important. There was a creative director who was the primary director mm -hmm. on the game through uh, most of it. You know, near the uh, – and I was only promoted mid – you know, mid-game, kind of like a like a breaded promotion and, and civil war or something like that. But um, the but John and I did form the vision together. Definitely, he owned it more and could you know he you know uh, I was his number one consultant or kind yeah. of collaborator on, on things. And yeah, that moment you know we already knew we were going to be doing a zombie game uh, in Oregon, and so it's not it's not like I came up with that. But what I was trying to distill was like. What if we're just out there, like, trying to figure out what the core fantasy was? Like, why do people want to play a game yeah. uh, about the apocalypse? Is, is uh, you know, what is the fantasy? What would they expect from it? And I'm like, okay, imagine I'm right down there when shit goes down. i got to get home. There's all kind of, a million things i got to start to figure out. Like, you know, okay, uh, where's my car? Can I use my car? Do I have to do this on foot? Are people fighting or not? Do I need a weapon? Do I have to go steal shit? So we just wanted to kind of, you know, put our, our, ourselves in, in the, the shoes of apocalyptic survivors and kind of try to figure out if there was something worth doing there and you know obviously we felt that already we we're just looking for a way to kind of galvanize the ideas but um yeah keeping it what, what that taught us was uh, that kind of set the tone for the relatability the you know being the everyman not the not the jarhead superhero mm -hmm. uh that would come in and, and kind of you know be above everything and not really threatened by anything slide down ladders <laughs> slide down ladders yeah or you know kind of paraglide or yeah, yeah. suit off it um, you know, and, and I, I get that example all the time. Like, you know, Barker, you can jump off a, you know, a building and you can parachute and, and wingsuit before you hit the ground. Like, it's fun, but it, it's just, it, there's no way anybody believes the right. stakes are real in those games, you know what I mean? Because of things like that. Yeah. So, um, got back to your question of, I forgot, I forgot the question because I jumped out of it. It was really just about, you know, having a narrative direction, a vision for the world itself, and then making the mechanics that make it feel real. You yeah. know, plugging yeah, the player sure. in. So, so John Garvin drove a lot of that stuff, and, and, you know, like I was his primary wingman on mm -hmm. things. But definitely one of the things when I when I took over and, and always had to enforce on, on the game direction side was, um, and I think we did a great job of this, you know, minimizing the, the, the ludonarrative dissonance, which is kind of prevalent in a lot of games. And... Um, you know, people could argue with that, but in general, we never made the, we never made the player, we never offered any activity to the player that didn't fit within what Deacon would do. And so, basically, by not giving, doing, you know, going the full Rockstar or Ubisoft model, we didn't have a bunch of side activities on, yeah. purpose, you know, for, for a couple reasons because we didn't have the resources for it, but also because um, those things just. 
they don't make any sense for what Deacon needs to be doing. You know, he's trying to find his wife, yeah. he's trying to kind of get boozer's medicine, uh, stopping to play a game of chess with somebody or playing a mini game somewhere. Just, you know, there are things that didn't make sense. So it's really just kind of finding a way to uh, make sure that you're honoring the story and, and, and kind of uh, serving the fantasies and expectations that come with it in, in interactivity. Um, more than uh, than you're trying to work against it by letting you slide down a ladder yeah. or making you let you fly off the shelf and play mini games. I'm thinking of the Zelda meme where it's like <laughs> Princess Zelda is like crying in the castle, and then you see like Link like flying around in a shield. Like <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you talked a little bit about when the game launched and um, how it was received. The game has a very it has a really devout following still, and it is doing very well in Steam too. Now that it launched on PC, which is its own conversation with. PlayStation exclusives going on to PC platforms. Um, if we can rewind the clock, though, a little bit, what was it like when the game launched for you? How did you feel it was received? Um, I, I answer however you feel. I don't want to open anything up for you, but I'm just I'm just curious about what it was like because you work on a thing for so long and then it's just it's out there. Yeah, no, you work on something for so long and then it comes out there and then it gets a 72 and a 71, you know, on Metacritic and yeah, that sucked. I mean, it. it uh, I knew. What, what the problems in the game were, you know, there was no stopping it, but, you know, I, I kind of, you know, used my, you know, I, I tried to guess, I'm like, I think we're at about a 79. I kind of feel like that's fair, uh, given the, the roughness of things, um, you know, but the hope was always like, okay, this is the first one, you know, we will, now that we don't have to fight over all these other things that we mm -hmm. built, we can build on top of those, and the next one's getting a 90, and the next one's going to be a piece of cake, maybe, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's going to be so much easier to be so much better. But yeah, um, it, it did suck because you spent seven years on something and then it comes out to, to that response. Um, and it's, it's one of those things where, you know, when you're making something with a team this big, there's, you know, a lot of competing opinions for how things could have gone. Mm -hmm. so, so it affirmed a lot of people, you know, politically it affirmed a lot of people's kind of problems or, or stuff. You know, it affirmed what they were saying or they, they think that it affirmed what they were saying. Um, and it, you know, basically, you don't want to be in the situation because you're back on your heels. You have to, you know, you have to, you know, argue against things that are pretty, that are much bigger than you. But so it's impossible to. So um, the, the the first couple of days were rough. Then after actually starting to read user stories on on Facebook or Reddit or Twitter, uh, that's when I realized, holy shit, the people get it. The you know the the, the people who play it's very it's a very polarizing game for mm -hmm. sure. And either you're into it or you're not. And uh, that's fair. We we knew that. Um, but the people who are into it, who play it and stick with it, um, yeah, they really love it. And they, they are devout followers and, and kind of advocates for the game. Um, you know, we, they wanted to experience it, so like their hearts were in it and they, they, they stuck with it. We certainly shot ourselves in the foot on pacing issues. You know, it's one of the things where, you know, uh, a game like this is so big that it's tough to measure. And yeah, if people if uh, people who made it to episode two, where they met um, Iron Mike and Ricky and everybody, they locked in and they were they were totally engaged for the rest of the game. But that first episode, where it was just kind of like way more amorphous and less directed, uh, yeah, it really kind of slowed people down. But for people who stuck around, they loved it and they were talking about it a lot and they were sharing a lot of photo mode, mm -hmm. and a lot of really clever things with that. But the stories, um, one of them I read on, uh, I think it was Reddit. Somebody recounted how they had been chased by a horde, and they ran up one of these radio towers, and, and they were stuck up top, and the horde was swarming the bottom. And uh, I'm like, oh, this isn't going. This isn't going to be a good story. And, and uh, then the guy keeps talking about, like, and then, uh, you know, I waited up there, like, 15 minutes. I'm like, okay, this is going to work. And then he's like, but then Don broke, and then the horde left and migrated back to their cave to sleep for the day. And then I slid down the ladder and rode the hell out. It was awesome. 
<laughs> and I'm like, yes, this is our customer record. This, these, this is the person who gets it. Right. And um, you know, there were a lot, there were a million other little stories like that that came out that kind of made me realize. So I'm like, okay, you know, this isn't a, you know, a global systemic failure. This was a failure on uh, te technology, polish, uh, pacing. Uh, some of the mechanics um, are controversial. Running out of gas, either you're into mm -hmm. it or you're not. Uh, you know, so it's going to gain you some points. It's going to lose you some points in, in places. Um, but yeah, once people started playing it and and kind of really uh, having fun with it, then that um, it made me feel good. It, you know, it basically kind of reinforced what we had learned and kind of how we could build upon it. Uh, and then we started doing challenges, uh, the challenge mode, because we we were going to do DLC, but we didn't have enough good story, viable story content. So we just decided to do these gameplay centric challenges. Where, um, whereas the rest of the game tried to really respect Ludo narrative dissonance, the challenges were like, no, let's really celebrate all of the different systems and mechanics, and let's highlight them for each, you know, for each individual challenge. We'll just find one as one aspect of the horde or combat or or the bike to just do an interesting twist on and create these these uh, these challenges that scale pretty well. And um, we had really good engagement on them. Um, and the the initial reviews were like, well, these are deeper than any these are deeper than the game has a right to to have. You know, so it's like, I think all that stuff is, you know, a compliment, even though it's kind of dicky. It's a little bit of an insult, yeah. compliment, and, um, yeah, so it, it's something where it's, it's, a, it's a contradiction in a lot of different ways, but the, the fact that the, the user scores is typically a 10 or 11 point differential over the critic scores on the console and on the PC kind of tells me, like, all right, this is something where if we could have made it more accessible, if we could have kind of shaved off the, mm -hmm. the, the rough edges of the drag that kept people from moving through it quickly, Enough. Um, I think that we would have had a much bigger, uh, a much bigger audience that just really bought into it because people who finish Days Gone, uh, you know, they fall in love with it and they, they, you know, it's like so going through that entire arc is something that is validating and confirming and, and, and rewarding. But the game, the developers, we didn't do the best job of keeping you on that, you know, keeping that front and center and, and accessible and easy to do. So that's water under the bridge. We'll never repeat that again. You know, but, but it works for the people who are into it. But yeah, I think we could have had a, a more mainstream game. Well, definitely there is an audience, as we mentioned, and there's the petition where over 100,000 people, it might be high north of that now, I haven't, I haven't checked in a while. Um, but regardless, it does have a very plugged in and an audience that's still talking about it. You mentioned it yourself, the plan was always to have a sequel to Days Gone? No. Um, you know, you always expect, I mean, when you're making a game, the sequel's mm -hmm. never a guaranteed thing. It's never, you know, you have to go through a lot of uh, pitches and processes for that, but um, but developers always think there's a sequel, you know, so when you're taking an idea out or you have a feature out, you're like, ah, in the sequel, we'll save this one for the sequel. It's just, we can't get to it now, but we'll yeah. put that in the sequel. So, so that's as official as, as it ever got. Um, but no, it, uh, we, we never even got a chance to pitch a sequel to, uh, to headquarters. So, okay, so there was just no, you never had a meeting about a potential. Oh, no, we, we, no we, had, we had plenty of, we had plenty of meetings where we were, we were dreaming up what it would be. Internally um, at Bend. In, in, internally, okay. right, but it, it never, it never got to uh, Herman's desk. Gotcha. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, sorry to even bring this back up because you have mentioned this before. Would you ever want to do a sequel to Days Gone or now that you've moved on from Ben and uh, how, where, where does the series live in your heart, I guess, is like the esoteric way of asking that question. The pointed way is if you would want to do a sequel. Well, you know, um, you know, I have moved on, so I think that uh, it, it's, um, and it's been two years since the game came out, mm -hmm. so like at a certain point, you just got to move on and sure. move on, <laughs> you know, completely. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say never, but I think that what, uh, you know, early on, I definitely wanted to do the sequel and kind of, you know, re refused to uh, 
to consider the opportunity of not doing it because it was just going to be so easy to make to deliver on the promise of the first one and build upon that. But um, at the same time, the lessons that I've learned, the philosophies that I've developed, the experiences that you know, the the, the the kind of the case studies that came out of the game, um, are things where I think that those are great building blocks for almost any type of game. So uh, when, when I think about what turned me on about Days Gone, it was about building systems that converge in very interesting, uh, surprising ways that uh, where players can have theories and test them out in the payoff. Um, and and that, that can apply to a number of different genres. So I think that I wouldn't say no to it, but I, I just uh, kind of want to, I want to keep the spirit of it going in, in some way, but it's not exactly what people would recognize, you know, superficially at least. Fair. Also very intriguing from what you said. There's a lot of like little breadcrumbs in there. <laughs> nothing behind that but yeah, so. <laughs> I'm gonna dig into it anyway uh, read into it sorry leaving Ben's studio what was that like for you was it a, a hard thing to do um, what kind of led up to that decision can you just kind of walk me through your headspace and what that was yeah, like? I mean it's it, it simple as um, the I, I felt as a designer that I you know is as a designer and as a game company we built this really interesting piece of software that was very uh, complex and interesting, and then the new things we were considering weren't. They, you know, they were really regressive from a design point of view. They still, there's still great opportunities, but there were things where I'm like, everything that I've just learned for seven years, I can't apply any of those lessons here. Like, you know, some sure, but not not the real ones that matter. Um, so that was a that was a big kind of uh, uh, that was that was hard to process. Um, but then just the studio changed so much too. Like, you know, the, the basically I think that they overcorrected in a lot of different ways on how to. You know, uh, kind of move on from Days Gone mm -hmm. uh, and, and the lessons from the first one. Overcorrected in a lot of ways that um, I, I just didn't recognize the place anymore and wasn't uh, didn't understand how it worked anymore. So it, it was just something where um, I it was very hard to make the decision. But um, you know, I did. I didn't get fired. I, as a matter of fact, I couldn't. I couldn't even get fired. <laughs> you know, from yeah, it because game tender. You know, yeah, yeah. They just they just wouldn't. You know, they, it was something where uh, they didn't want to give me, you know, control of certain things, but they wouldn't let me go, or they wouldn't All let right. me kind of like do, do other roles and stuff. So uh, it really kind of came down to wanting to parlay the experience that we had before, mm -hmm. uh, kind of continue the momentum. And the studio really just kind of killed all momentum of everything from the, you know, so like it was again almost an entire decade of wisdom and experience and tool sets and systems just gone. And you know, the idea of starting from scratch and kind of uh, I just don't want to go through it again. So I decided to, to uh, move on to uh, focus on, on fewer things. <laughs> you know, because I, I did wear a lot of hats at Bend and you know, part of me was like, let me, uh, you know, I, I worked really hard. I, I still will always work hard, but I need, I need to be responsible for less and I don't mm -hmm. necessarily want to be the main guy. So uh, that's why I took a full-time design management job. Um, at another that's interesting. Yeah. At another room, yeah. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about that is, um, even though it's exactly what I wanted, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not in the game anymore. You know what I mean? Like, and part of it, part of the, the, you know, what they sold me on there was that my lack of fighting game experience was a benefit. And I'm like, oh, that sounds great. You know, and uh, it's, it's something where I'm like, okay, this is cool, but like, I cannot help them in any kind of way that I would help designers in the past, right? So it's like it's almost pure HR, but it's. Uh, there's a lot of mentoring. There's a lot of things that are similar across those genres, mm -hmm. and yet a lot of things are completely different. So um, I love it just for the learning, you know, just kind of like seeing how new things are done and just, uh, like, again, another studio that does some things really, really well that the other place did was very difficult and vice versa. So, like, you know, so that old adage holds up across studios. 
just as a fan, are you a fan of Mortal Kombat? I am a very light. Uh, no, I'm not a hardcore fan. I'm a okay. fan, but like I'm, I'm one where I would dabble in over the years. But when I started looking at MK11, because it came out the same month we did too, so yeah. always mm-hmm. this thing. You know, so I played it, and then I then I, uh, I finished the story mode, and then went deep in some of the powers uh, as I was interviewing for the job. But um, what's fascinating to me about Mortal Kombat is. Um, in the early '90s, when it came out, like you know, it, it was just that game. There was, you know, you know, you play it. There's Street Fighter. There's, you know, not, I won't, I won't count Virtual Fighter. There's Tekken. There's Street Fighter. And then there's that game that's like just doing this like over the top fatalities, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's great fun, but it almost felt like it was just a passing fad. And it's just really impressive watching how over the years they've actually cultivated that into the, the way that the developers treat the property is it's how precious it is and how how tender they are with. With every you know every iteration of the game being different in significant ways, not just doing Madden roster updates every right. year. So it's I, the art and the craft which they bring to making uh, a gory fighting game is, is something that is it's um, it's really fun to watch. And in, when you look at the community for Mortal Kombat, I mean these guys are we have people playing that who grew up with nothing but Mortal Kombat in their lives or touched them very early on. Yep. And they're, you know so you've got fans that are thirty you know thirty year long fans. Uh, of a game is insane. You know, there's very few games that I think that can claim that. The very few franchises anywhere outside of yeah. just games that have been around that long. Um, Jeff, thank you very much. I'm going to leave you with one last question, and I really ask this of you as someone who has been in the industry for such a long time, worn so many different hats. If somebody's trying to get into the industry right now, do you have any advice for them? Yeah, uh, make something. You know, make something on your own. Uh, you know, you need to have something to show. If you're going to find me, if you run into me at a show, um, don't just tell me you want a job. Show me what you can do and, and impress me. So I think that it goes back to my earlier advice of just start figuring out a lot of little different ask components of a game. It's going to teach you what you like and don't like and the things that you're good at and, and, you know, and strong at. And just lean into those and build something that can kind of be demonstrative of what you can do for me. Um, Beyond that, you could spend a quarter million dollars and go to college, uh, <laughs> you know, or you can learn on your own. So I think that, but it's um, always be building is, is my advice to people, whether they're in the industry or if they're trying to get in. You need a portfolio. You need something that's going to help you stand out, and it can't be words. It has to be it has to be something that I can see and or feel. I love that. Always be building. Now we got a T-shirt out of this too. Uh, <laughs> awesome, Jeff. Thank you so much. Special credit to David Mamet there. <laughs> That guy. Uh, awesome. Jeff, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Really, I appreciate your time and all the work you've done over the years. I mean, it's a pleasure to speak with you always. Yeah, no problem. Uh, nice talking to you again, and uh, good luck. Take Thanks. Care.